Well, as we pick back up in uh, Mark chapter 9, we are still in uh, what we might call the afterglow of Christ's transfiguration. Peter, James, and John have beheld the divine glory. They have heard the voice of the Father from heaven. But when they come down from the mountain, they find, as Moses did, a crowd of unbelief. Uh, We saw in this crowd, uh, it includes Jewish scribes, it includes the disciples, it includes a demon-possessed boy, and it includes uh, the boy's father who cried out, I believe, help my unbelief. We saw that uh, Jesus then cast out this demon, and he declared that some spirits can only come forth by prayer and fasting. So that was how uh, we concluded a couple weeks ago, that was how verse 29 ended that scene. Well, in our passage this morning, uh, verses 30 to 50, this is a tough text, there's a lot in here, Uh, we are now receiving some private instruction that Jesus gives to his disciples. So in this scene, we're no longer uh, outside with the crowds, we are actually now uh, in a house back in Capernaum, their home base, uh, perhaps even in Peter's own home. And so this section is a kind of uh, coach's huddle. Uh, this is kind of the, half, the halfway point in Mark's gospel. Uh, it's halftime, and Jesus is going to review some things with them. So uh, these disciples are supposed to be, uh, continuing this metaphor, these disciples are supposed to be teammates. And as with any team, if you've ever uh, been on a team playing sports or some other uh, uh, contest, uh, it's very easy. There's an easy temptation to try to jockey for position, to compete, and at times this can even be good, uh, and to make comparisons about who is better than who at what. And people try to show themselves as deserving the best and most prominent role. Uh, everyone wants to be quarterback. Uh, everyone wants to be the star. Everyone desires the glory that comes from uh, making the winning shot, hitting the home run, being the best, the beautifulest, the brightest above our peers. And it is this uh, aspiration for superiority that Jesus wants to redirect and refocus in the 12 disciples. Far from suppressing their desire for greatness, as some uh, people have mistakenly took this passage, uh, Jesus is teaching here uh, what true greatness is. The problem is not that you want to be great or that you want to be better than others. The problem is that you don't know what greatness is. And that is what Jesus is going to unfold for us here. So, uh, overview of the text. Our sermon could be organized around uh, five things that Jesus says we must purge from ourselves if we would have salt in ourselves. This is what he says in verse 50. Have salt in yourselves and have peace one with another. So if you want peace with God, if you want inner peace, if you want peace uh, within your relationships, and especially in the church, Jesus is going to tell you how to get it. Now the setup for this conversation is verses 30 to 32. And there Jesus describes his future death and resurrection. It says, And they departed thence, passed through Galilee, and he would not that any man should know it. For he taught his disciples and said unto them, The Son of Man is delivered into the hands of men, and they shall kill him, and after that he is killed, he shall rise the third day. But they understood not that saying, and were afraid to ask him. So if you are uh, keeping track with where we are in the gospel, this is the second of three cycles where Jesus explicitly tells the disciples 
what is going to happen to him. So uh, for the first roughly eight chapters, Jesus is just, uh, you know, David the Lion King going here, roaring here, healing people, doing this and that. And we don't know, you know, where, what is his destination? We just know he's king, he's son, but what is that going to entail? Well, we're now into these cycles of him spelling out for his disciples that he's going to die and rise again. So for us who are Christians, this might seem obvious, but for them, this is a very new thing. So the, the disciples go away confused. They do not understand. We saw this earlier in Mark 8 when Jesus told them that Peter rebuked Jesus, and then Jesus rebuked Peter, get behind me, Satan. And so you can imagine here the disciples, having remembered uh, Peter's uh, blabbing his mouth, they're afraid to ask. None of them want to be the next one to get the get behind me, Satan uh, story in the Gospels. Uh, Nonetheless, they illustrate just how badly they still do not understand by arguing amongst themselves about who is the greatest. So verses 33 to 34. And he came to Capernaum, and being in the house, he asked them, what was it that ye disputed among yourselves by the way? But they held their peace. That means they uh, remained silent. For by the way, they had disputed among themselves who should be the greatest. Mark uh, draws our attention by repeating this phrase from Jesus, uh, by the way, or in, in the way. And this is how the very beginning of the gospel began. Jesus comes to prepare the way of the Lord. So he's adverting us to the fact that Jesus is literally on his way to Jerusalem to die, and yet the disciples are squabbling over who is the best. This is kind of like the impropriety of uh, driving to your parents' funeral while arguing with your siblings over who is going to get the house. The disciples fail to grasp the weight of what Jesus is doing, and they are only thinking about themselves, their position, their place. So Jesus, of course, already knowing what they were talking about, he asks them, what was it that you disputed among yourselves by the way? Again, nobody wants to answer. They're silent. And so Jesus tells them the first thing that must die in them if they would have peace among themselves, if they would become salty. So the first, first thing, first of five uh, things that must die is the desire to be great in the eyes of the world. The desire to be great in the eyes of the world. Self-importance, the good opinion of others, the adoration of the masses, these self-centered desires for greatness must die in you if you would truly follow Jesus. So many of our problems and conflicts come from caring a lot more about what other people think of us than what God thinks of us. And this is uh, biblically what we would call the opposite of the fear of the Lord. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, to hate evil, and this is the opposite of that. It's caring, it's fearing man, it's caring about man's opinion. So if you want to be great, if you want to be better than that guy or that girl, you, you, you need to ask yourself, why? Why do, you, why do you need to be the best? What is driving that desire? Uh, many people have never asked themselves that really basic question, and this is what Jesus Christ exposes. Verse 35, And he sat down and called the twelve, and saith unto them, If any man desire to be first, the same shall be last of all, and servant of all. And he took a child, and set him in the midst of them, And when he had taken him in his arms, he said unto them, Whosoever shall receive one of such children in my name receiveth me. And whosoever shall receive me receiveth not me, but him that sent me. 
So in order to illustrate the essence of true greatness, Jesus takes a little child up into his arms. And because of where they are, uh, it's possible this could have even been Peter's own son. It could have been one of the disciples' uh, cousins or nephews or someone. There's someone that's in the house with them. So uh, this child signifies the external insignificance that should characterize the disciples internally. The disciples want to be great. Children are small. The disciples want to be powerful. Children are weak. The disciples want to be noticed and seen. Children are often overlooked. And yet Jesus says that whosoever receives one of these little children in his name, whether an actual child or a child in the faith, they are receiving Christ himself, and not just Christ, but the Father who sent him. And so we see here uh, Jesus kind of flipping the world's value system upside down. And given the, um, the, the child mortality rate in the ancient world, it was very rare for a child, uh, or it was very common for a child to not make it to the age of three or five. And so uh, you can imagine with children dying at, with such frequency in those little years, people who are pagans who uh, don't believe children are made in the image of God. Uh, Children are just not seen as very economically valuable. Uh, There's all sorts of reasons why they would uh, look down on children. And yet when when Jesus comes, we see him always uh, continuing to interact, love, and elevate children uh, as fellow image bearers. We'll see this again in a couple weeks. Uh, uh, We'll see this again. So to receive a child in the name of Jesus is to receive Jesus. Jesus literally embraces what is considered small and weak and insignificant, and he gives it by the giving of his name to the child in infinite value. So to receive a child in the name of Jesus is to receive Jesus and therefore to receive God. And think about this. If you have God, what more could you want? If you have God, what more could you want? So far from discouraging their aspiration for greatness, Jesus directs them to desire he who is very greatness, God himself. If you want to be great, then, well, you need to want God. Practically, this means that by serving one another, by stooping low and embracing the little children, we come to embrace God. And when we embrace God in these little children, we are then conformed into the image of God. We begin to reflect to the world what God is like, and we become actually great in the eyes of God, right? It's in his eyes uh, that greatness is actually measured. This is what Jesus exemplifies, and it is what he calls all of his disciples to do. If you want to be great, if you want to be like God, then you must lower yourself like he did. This is what greatness does when it takes on human flesh. It says in Psalm 138:6, Though the Lord be high, yet hath he respect unto the lowly, but the proud he knoweth afar off. What does Mary say when she is given the honor of carrying God in her womb? She says, My soul doth magnify the Lord, and my spirit hath rejoiced in God my Savior, for he hath regarded the low estate of his handmaiden. He hath regarded the lowest state of his handmaiden. So the first thing that has to die in us, if we want to be great, uh, if we would have peace amongst ourselves, is this desire to be great in our own eyes, to, uh, to be great in the eyes of the world, instead of wanting to be great in the eyes of God. 
Um, It's very easy to compare yourself with others and then arrive at a conceited or inflated or just altogether untrue view of yourself. It's very easy to find someone who's just a little less Christian than you and then make yourself feel like, oh, I must be doing pretty good. These are the lies we tell ourselves to make us feel better. But when we compare ourselves to the divine majesty, to he who is truly great, uh, suddenly that competition, that comparison gets exposed for the folly that it is. So who are you uh, comparing yourself with? Are you comparing yourself with God or with uh, that person who, in your eyes, is worse off than you? Well, flowing from this inflated view of the self is a second desire that we must likewise put to death. And that is the desire to gain a following for ourselves. Or put another way, it's the desire to be a gatekeeper according to our own opinions and preferences rather than drawing the lines where God draws them. We see this in verses 38 to 40. This is John, uh, John the Apostle. And John answered him saying, Master, we saw one casting out devils in thy name, and he followeth not us. And we forbade him because he followeth not us. But Jesus said, which shall do a miracle in my name that can lightly speak evil of me. For he that is not against us is on our side. So John is concerned here that there is an exorcist outside of the 12 that is casting out devils in Jesus' name. And uh, perhaps more embarrassing in the larger context is that uh, what did the disciples uh, just have a problem doing? They they couldn't cast out the demon from the demon-possessed boy, okay? So it's coming right right after that, and uh, maybe this is reading too much into it, but it's almost as if the disciples have this kind of inferiority complex. They are insecure in their abilities and therefore forbid this man, who's actually being effective, from using Jesus' name to do spiritual warfare. Jesus corrects this misguided prohibition and says, forbid him not. For there is no man which shall do a miracle in my name that can lightly speak evil of me. For he that is not against us is on our side. So insecurity and self-importance breed evil suspicions. And when we are more concerned with ourselves and our clique and our place in the pecking order, we are made unable to see clearly who is friend and who is foe, who is an ally and who is enemy. This is what uh, selfishness will blind you to. There is a lot of friendly fire in the church because we sin in this way all the time. Uh, We think that just because uh, other Christians do things or uh, think things, God forbid, a little differently than we do, that they must be heretics or they must not be Christians at all. Uh, In the words of John, because they followeth not us, therefore we must stop them. Well, Jesus' response is that if they're doing miracles in Jesus' name, they're doing good works, then they're on our side. Therefore, don't forbid them. Um, there are resonances here to what Paul says in Romans 14.4. He says, Who are you to judge another's servant? To his own master he stands or falls. Indeed, he will be made to stand, for God is able to make him stand. Now, uh, this is not to say that we must blindly approve of everyone who claims to come in Jesus' name. Uh, We know from the Apostle Paul that some people really do need to be forbidden. They really need to be silenced. There really are many false teachers, and the church really must forbid certain people from teaching. 
Paul says this in Titus 1, 10 to 11. For there are many unruly and vain talkers and deceivers, especially they of the circumcision, whose mouths must be stopped, who subvert whole houses, teaching things which they ought not for filthy lucre's sake. So those people really do exist. There are many in the church today, and they really do need to be silenced. But that is not who Jesus is talking about here, and the disciples are not seeing uh, this clearly. They're not able to make this distinction. Uh, So who was this man? Well, we're not told exactly who this man was. He might have been a disciple of John the Baptist or a recent convert. For all we know, this man could have been one of the other 70 disciples that Jesus had commissioned to do this work. Just because he was not uh, following them among the 12 does not mean he is some kind of unlicensed minister, gone rogue. Whatever the case, whoever he was, were unworthy of making these kinds of judgments and unworthy of making this kind of distinction between friend and foe if we lack the humility and meekness of Christ. If we are thinking more in terms of are they following our, our tribe, our teaching, our denomination or whatever, rather than are they following the Lord Jesus. And this is what Jesus wants his disciples to internalize if there's going to be peace, right? This is a really big issue in the church today where it's like anyone thinks they can just open up the Bible and arrive at the truth. And so you have, you know, people create uh, cults, churches, YouTube channels, podcasts where they think, all right, I, I by myself am just going to start teaching the Bible and I'm not accountable to anybody for anything I say, right? This is a big problem in uh, the United States, especially where the church is so disunified. So we need to be able to make and judge, you know, what kind of person is this? Is this someone that is teaching falsehood for filthy lucre's sake? Or is this someone who's just maybe a little ignorant and they need to be corrected? So we need humility, we need meekness to be able to make this kind of judgment. When we start to equate following Jesus with following us, as John did, we are in danger of confusing and mistaking our friends as enemies. And what is worse, we risk stumbling those who are young or children in the faith. Jesus continues in verses 41 to 42. For whosoever shall give you a cup of water to drink in my name, because ye belong to Christ, verily I say unto you, he shall not lose his reward. And whosoever shall offend one of these little ones that believe in me, it is better for him that a millstone were hanged about his neck, and he were cast into the sea. These are strong words. It is a grave sin to make a child to stumble. And notice that Jesus calls them little ones that believe in me. Little children have the capacity to believe in Jesus. Uh, Now, regardless of whether you believe infants should be baptized or, or not, our church believes they should be, what you must not do is put a stumbling block in their way to Christ. You must not sow seeds of doubt in the children's heart. You must not keep them from the arms of Jesus. Instead, you should encourage and confirm their belief, not constantly second-guess whether their faith is genuine or not. When parents undermine the faith of their children, and they can do this in myriad ways, they are asking God to hang a millstone around their neck and drop them into the ocean. And that should sober us, that should scare us as parents in many ways. 
This is one of the reasons why uh, we want our children in the worship service with us. Because not only do they have the capacity to believe and participate at a very young age, but Jesus explicitly commands his disciples, as we'll hear him in a couple, uh, uh, do in a couple weeks from now, suffer little children and forbid them not to come unto me. For of such is the kingdom of heaven. Likewise, in Matthew 18, three to four, Jesus says, verily I say unto you, except ye be converted and become as little children, ye shall not enter into the kingdom of heaven. Whosoever therefore shall humble himself as this little child, the same is greatest in the kingdom of heaven. So Jesus welcomes and embraces children and he, com- uh, he commands us to humble ourselves as little children, to have simple faith like they do. And that is the way to becoming great in the kingdom of heaven. The disciples' sin was to exclude the children, to exclude the unnamed exorcist, and to look down upon those who did not follow them. But in both cases, Jesus says, forbid them not. They may be children in understanding. They may be very immature. They may be ignorant in many ways, but do not place a stumbling block in their path. Jesus says, let them Come to me. So we must mortify in ourselves this desire to be more tidy and more organized than God. Christ's body, his church, is a very messy place. There are many lines of division and schism in the body, and yet we will be unable to judge and discern those distinctions rightly if we're more concerned about people following us and our pet doctrines than following the Lord Jesus. So we need to have a sense of proportion. This is something that, uh, you know, when you first start learning something, you get really excited about it, and, you know, that's your hammer and everyone else is a nail. So we need to kind of step, step back for a moment and... Uh, have a sense of proportion. What are first things? This is why we say the creed every week, right? Uh, uh, Those things, start with those things, the really uh, simple, basic, straightforward things, and then you can proceed to the things that are on the skinny branches. This is the only way that we can do what Paul says in Ephesians 4.3, and endeavor to keep the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. Endeavor to keep the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. You need to have a sense of due proportion. So to summarize here, we must purge our desire first to be great in the eyes of the world and second to gain a following for ourselves. Finally, uh, we must put to death three sins of the body and we'll call these uh, sins of the hand, sins of the foot and sins of the eye. So picking up in verse 43, it says, and if thy hand offend thee, cut it off. It is better for thee to enter into life maimed than having two hands to go into hell into the fire that never shall be quenched, where their worm dieth not, and the fire is not quenched. The logic of Jesus' argument in all three of these cases is essentially, uh, do whatever it takes to not go to hell. Whatever you must do to avoid eternal punishment, do it. And that might sound really kind of harsh and old-fashioned, like some kind of Southern Baptist turn burn preacher. But, I mean, Jesus... He repeats this. We, we listened to it when I read the text out loud, just over and over and over again. And you're, 
you're meant to think, you know, whatever the worm is, I take it as probably the conscience, whatever the burning inside you is, the external flames, uh, those are symbols for something far worse, okay? So you can imagine a worm not dying, just eating you alive, the fire burning you, and yet not totally consuming you. You're meant to think about that and know that whatever that is a symbol of, it's a symbol of something that's way worse than that. And Jesus comes and he preaches these things because he doesn't want people to go there. This is what love does. Here is love incarnate, and he's telling you, whatever it takes to not go to hell, do it. In this case, it is, of course, unlawful, according to Leviticus 19.28 and the golden rule, to literally cut off your hand or your foot or gouge out your own eye. But Jesus uses this image to get the point of cross. One of the reasons we know this is just a figure of speech, a metaphor, is because cutting off your literal hand or foot or eye uh, doesn't actually keep you from sinning. Right? There are people who only have one eye, we call them pirates, and, uh, <laughs> and they still can sin. Okay? What do you know? You still have the other hand, the other foot, the other eye. You still have a sinful heart, which as we saw earlier, that is where sin actually proceeds. So it's not the literal body part that causes you to sin in the first place. And this is why the Christian tradition has taken the hand, foot, and eye in this context as metaphors for either uh, different kinds of people or different kinds of sins that we can commit. And we have examples of uh, this usage elsewhere in the Bible. Uh, For example, Paul says famously in 1 Corinthians 12 that the church is one body with diverse members, diverse body parts. So there in 1 Corinthians 12, feet, hands, eyes, ears, these are all uh, metaphors that signify different kinds of people in the church. We see also that hands, feet, and eyes can signify different actions, good or bad. Uh, To judge unjustly is to have an evil eye. The adulterous woman has feet that go down to shale, Proverbs 5.5. The works of man's hands can be either good or evil. So you could really reflect on uh, this image of the hand, the foot, and the eye, and think about how those signify different people or different kinds of sins. And I'll just give you a few gestures to help you as you meditate upon this uh, more this week. So when you reflect on Jesus' command here, he says, cut off the hand, cut off the foot, uh, gouge out the eye. How can we apply this? Well, to cut off the hand may mean something like we need to sever certain friendships that are tempting us to do evil. What is a hand? A hand is like a counselor, a close friend on the right hand or the left. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15:33 that evil counsel, bad company ruins good morals. So, who is your right-hand man? Who's your left-hand man? Who are your close friends? And are they making you more like Christ or are they making you more worldly? Are they going to drag you to hell? I remember this when I was at a university uh, in Seattle. You, you just kind of know uh, people who go in, they're freshmen, and uh, they're trying to find their friend group. They profess faith. Maybe you see them at church. But you just know they start hanging out with this group of people. And you know, the next year, uh, they're not walking with the Lord at all. Right? They're partying, they're drinking, they're sleeping with their girlfriend, whatever it is. Uh, this, it, this story happens so frequently, it's almost boring, right? It's like you, you've, just, you've seen this story over and over again, and, I've, and I'm sure some of you have seen this as well. So wh- what is Jesus saying? C- cut off the hand, cut off that relationship. 
Who, who is that friend that might be causing you to sin? Well, you need new friends. You need to cut them out of your life. If that sounds kind of harsh, or like it might be painful, or like you know they might cry or might not like you, well, Jesus then gives you an incentive to do this. Because however hard and painful it is to cut off certain relationships, a uh, worm does not die, fire never stops burning. Okay. Th- this is why Jesus gives us uh, this image of hell, because he knows we like to not rock the boat. Right? We want to keep our relationships intact. We think we can both kind of have a hand, foot, and eye in the world and also one in heaven. Jesus says, no, there can be no such thing. So you can have uh, temporary pain and discomfort now or even discomfort in your friendships for the rest of your life, but it will be far less pain than the pain of hellfire. That is the trade-off. What about the foot? Well, to cut off a foot might mean you stop going places that tempt you to sin, right? That's what feet do. They take you places. It might mean you stop going there literally, or it might mean you stop going there in your heart's imagination. It might mean you have to get a dumb phone and cut off access to the internet. Proverbs 1, 15 to 16 says, My son, walk not thou in the path with them. Refrain thy foot from their path. For their feet run to evil and make haste to shed blood. So what roads do your feet take you down? What roads do your feet take you down that are not the straight and narrow path of Christ? What mental roads do you stroll down that you would be ashamed for other people to see, especially God, who already knows and sees all, will cut them off and run to Christ? Lastly, what sins of the eye must be cut out if we would see God? Job 31.1 says, I made a covenant with mine eyes. Why then should I think upon a maid? Psalm 119.37 says, Turn away my eyes from looking at worthless things or vanity and revive me in your way. I'll close with this. Jesus says in verses 49 to 50, For everyone shall be salted with fire, and every sacrifice shall be salted with salt. Salt is good, but if the salt have lost his saltness, wherewith will ye season it? Have salt in yourselves and have peace one with another. So everyone, every one of you is going to be salted with fire. Everyone is going to pass through the judgment of God who is a consuming fire. And you can either burn forever where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched, or you can become a living sacrifice that God receives and transforms into something glorious. God's covenant is called a covenant of salt. And he required in Leviticus 2.13, it says this, the salt of the covenant of thy God must not be lacking from thy meat offering. With all thine offerings thou shalt offer salt. And so if you and I would become acceptable, sacrifice, acceptable sacrifices to God, we must, as Jesus says, have salt in ourselves. So purge yourself from every sin that clings so closely. Cut off whatever is keeping you from the kingdom. For as Jesus promises in Matthew 5, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, amen. Amen.